I'd like to start off today by asking you a little bit about your childhood. How did you hear about this project? What is your earliest memory? What did you have for breakfast just to test the level? Ready to, well, ready to go. Hello and welcome to episode one of the National Life Stories podcast. I'm David Govier, the oral history archivist at the British Library. We'll be using this podcast to bring you great oral history interview extracts and to try to get to the bottom of what we think is special about the life story approach to oral history. National Life Stories was launched in 1987 by Paul Thompson and Asa Briggs. This year we celebrated our 30th birthday by highlighting in our annual review standout interviews from each of our main fieldwork projects. Mary Stewart wrote about Lives in Oil, an oral history project which documented the lives of those in the oil industry. For our first episode, Mary takes us back to 1988 and the Piper Alpha disaster. I'd never been in the North Sea so far away from land and I looked up at the, the size of this platform and it was absolutely huge. It was the biggest structure I'd ever seen in my life. Much of the rest of the time was waiting, waiting for another helicopter, trying to get the names from the other helicopter. Every time a helicopter came in, everybody rushed to the window. Then um, word came, no more helicopters. Piper Alpha was an oil rig in the North Sea, northeast of Aberdeen. It suffered a huge explosion on the 6th of July 1988, killing 167 people. In the course of the Lives in Oil project, survivors of the Piper Alpha disaster and other people who were affected by it reflected on its impact upon their lives. Mary, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, so I'm Mary Stewart and I'm the Curator of Oral History here and I'm Deputy Director of National Life Stories. So National Life Stories turns 30 this year in 2017. So you wrote, among other things, about uh, the Lives in Oil project. Could you tell us a bit about that? I can. Well, the project was actually finished in 2005 and I joined the library in 2006. So I can't claim my work directly on this project, but I think it's a fantastic project. It was um, a five-year project run um, with National Life Stories in collaboration with um, the University of Aberdeen and Hugo Manson was the interviewer on the project. And in those, that five-year period, um, Hugo travelled all over, mostly Scotland, but some bits of um, the rest of Britain as well, and recorded 177 life story interviews. So it's a really interesting project, a very successful project, but also I think has been has typified quite a lot of our approach within National Life Stories, which is where we try and take usually a particular sector and try and gather as many different voices and stories from that sector as, poss as possible. And I think often people think, oh, we'll just capture the, in inverted commas, important stories, the board members, the engineers, the people maybe even working on the oil rig. But I think what this project shows is that you can get so much when you actually take a step back and try and think about all the different many functions within a particular industry and you get some amazing perspectives from people whose voices would usually be hidden. Bob Ballantyne talks in his seven hour life story interview about lots and lots of things about his, um, his home life, his um, childhood, his education, his experience on oil rigs and talks in detail about his experience being on Piper Alpha when it exploded and that's quite an arresting and moving clip um, and I feel when I listen to that that I'm right there with Bob in the water. Maybe maybe it's a good point for us to play it and the people at home can listen and see what they think. Here's Bob. I was afraid 
I was terrified and uh, I thought, oh no, I can't. And I thought this was a, this was a bad dream. That somehow, this was a nightmare, that somehow someone was going to turn this off and I was going to wake up and I was back in the cabin and I was somewhere else. And uh, that never happened. Uh, and, and also, I'd never ever, I'd never been in the North Sea so far away from land. And I looked up at the, the size of this platform, and it was absolutely huge. It was the biggest structure I'd ever seen in my life for that angle. Uh, and there was the noise was the noise was terrible. Right? There was bangs, explosion. There was things clattering down. There was things falling off of the platform. Uh, one, of the, one of the seamen had told me that he could actually hear me shouting above him and uh, <laughs> I was shouting, you bastards, come in and get me. And uh, I never realised that anybody could hear me. But they could, he says, we heard people, somebody shouting, and I, I told them it was me who was, was shouting for him to come in uh, because I wasn't going to leave the platform. Uh, I loaded a life jacket and stuff on, I was under the water, I was in the water. And what I must say, because of the intense heat, I was actually throwing the water over myself for it to cool down. Uh, and the water wasn't cold, but I was throwing the water. I was, I was burning up as well with that. Uh, and it was only, and Ian Latham was uh, the coxswain on uh, the, the Zodiac had come in to pick him up and, and blown up and Ian was the only survivor and Ian floated by me uh, with his life jacket and how and stuff like that and I pulled him in beside me and uh, it wasn't a rescue or anything, it wasn't any hero thing, it was just for somebody to talk to or somebody to be with me that I wouldn't be myself, that here's another human being here. So you were saying that, that uh, you feel you're in the water with Bob? I do. I think it's so powerful how he speaks. You can hear the emotion in his voice. You can clearly imagine what's going on around you. And he talks about a zodiac in it, which is a rescue boat. And it still really kind of chokes me up listening to this clip, thinking what this man went through and what all those other people who may or may not have survived that disaster went through on that day because it's all explained in in words and and voices that you can imagine it being you thinking i've never seen something so enormous or i've never been in the water in the north sea and it's blooming cold you or actually at that point really really hot because you've got to buy a burning oil rig um so i think if a journalist, as many have done, had gone and asked Bob about it. He would have given a really interesting account of being at Piper Alpha. But I think because Hugo had spent so long chatting to Bob about Bob's life and listening, I think that meant that you get a different quality of description and information and sense of emotion than you would if you were, you know, XYZ BBC journalist with a microphone asking Bob just about Piper Alpha because Piper Alpha was one very important part of Bob's whole life, and I think that is why the clip is so moving. So the next um, clip that you've chosen is Alan Swinton. 
who has a very different story. He wasn't on the rig, was he? No, he was the chaplain at Aberdeen Royal Infirmary. And um, although he had had some idea that something might happen at some point, he'd never expected such a giant disaster as Piper Alpha to happen. And Aberdeen really became the central focus on those days, early days in July for um, any of the survivors were helicoptered to Aberdeen Royal Infirmary, but also that's where it became a focal point for all of those people looking for their relatives. I knew there was a big problem because, as I say, I lived across from the helicopter pad. I was, I was in bed, but the helicopter came in, and then another one came in, and then another one came in. And I said to my wife, I'll be needed, I'll get up and get dressed. I got up and got dressed, and interestingly, which was a bit unusual, I put on my clerical collar which identified me as the chaplain. The telephone rang, Mr. Swinton, there's a major civil accident, could you come across? I said, I'm on my way. I'll be there in five minutes. What time was that? Three something, 3.40, somewhere round about there, as far as I can remember. So I went up to the chapel. There were two women standing there. Now, you must remember, I knew nothing at all about what was happening. They expected me, of course, to have some information. They had some. I had none whatsoever. Two relatives became four, became six, became ten, became twenty. And suddenly the place was well filled with people. The first casualties... I'm sorry, the first list of survivors was not given to me until 11 a.m. on the 7th, and I pinned it up outside the chapel. Uh, that caused uh, some hurts, because, of course, it was a first list. It was a limited list, and people, I remember one man from Kilmarnock coming up to the list and looking down the list and taking out his handkerchief and wiping his eyes and reading down the list again. And I remember going up to him and putting my arm round him and saying, he's not there, is he? And he said, no. Much of the rest of the time was waiting, waiting for another helicopter, trying to get the names from the other helicopter. Every time a helicopter came in, everybody rushed to the window then um, word came, no more helicopters. I called everybody into the chapel and I said, ladies and gentlemen, I have to say to you, there are no more helicopters. There was a kind of stunned silence. And then groups started forming crying, crying, numb. What do we do now? I found it really interesting uh, listening to Alan because he was expecting a call of some sort and he understood what his job was in that context. But where his interview, I think, becomes um, really interesting is the context of the list of survivors mm -hmm. and 
the fact that he is the main guy in this context of families waiting for the next, for any helicopters. And I suppose it, it's these points in people's lives where um, they're trained for something, but there's no way of of them being fully prepared for it. No, I think that's that's really true. And I think he does say, I heard the, I heard the helicopters arriving. It, I could hear them from my bedroom window. It was like 3 a.m. I put on my, you know, I put on my clothes and, you know, put on my dog collar and he kind of knew there was something happening, but I think he didn't quite, the extent of it was so enormous and he just had to just try and, as much as he could, switch on a kind of part of his professional and obviously his personality just to keep going and manage as much as he could through those first initial days. I think what's also interesting, and Bob and Alan both sadly died in 2004, not long after they were interviewed, um, is I think you can also feel that there has been a 12 or 13 year gap between the Piper Alpha disaster and when they're telling their stories. So it's very painful for them, but I think that time period has allowed them some distance to reflect back on um, what had happened. I'm not going to use some trite word saying, you know, they've processed it or they've healed it, because I don't know if you ever do with those terrible disasters. But I think they're able to describe what's happening in a different way than if you'd interviewed them the next week or the next month. Is that distance important, do you think? I think asking these very in-depth questions and someone to speak for two or three hours about something that only happened big disaster that only happened maybe two or three months beforehand it might not be the right time it might be I think then if you interviewed them five years afterwards or ten years afterwards you would you would capture those stories in a different way not in any way that was perhaps any more or less value or more or less true in inverted commas but I think that the distance that there was between Piper Alpha and Alan and Bob speaking meant that they had had that time in order to be able to then relive those experiences for us. I think had you done that much earlier, it may have been almost, for some people, too soon and they may have been unable to speak in such detail. But of course that varies from person to person, so I'm not trying to generalise too much. But I think it was Hugo Manson's skill and the time he'd spent with these two individuals that allowed us to really hear about those events in the way they were able to describe them. We're going to leave the last words to Bob and Alan. Bob's going to tell us how he dealt with the trauma by keeping in mind what he calls the day-to-day -day things. Meanwhile, Alan is going to tell us how he and his wife learnt to counsel people. I was thinking about Amanda. I was thinking about Clyde football team. Well, Amanda's my daughter. I was thinking about Clyde football team. How did it, I'd never seen Clyde win the European Cup. And I was wanting to love to see Clyde win the European Cup. It was terribly important for me. It was equally important, if not more so. I'd, I'd see Amanda as well. Uh, and being a miserable Scot, we'd just booked up a holiday, a three-week holiday in France. And I thought, hey, wait a minute, I've just booked up this holiday in France. So the mundane, or the day-to-day the, the -day life things, right, the things that you held quite close to you were important. And you didn't look at the big picture. You looked at, you looked inside yourself and you looked 
lot of things that meant something to you. I didn't need to check up on what Mary was doing or she to check up on what I was doing. We were both doing our best. What did it mean doing your best? Usually, not doing anything at all, but being. And I've said to many clergy, st stop talking. Stop trying to do so much. Be. Sit. Listen. Listen to what the needs are that are coming across. Listen to the tears. Why? Because that's the only way you'll minister, if you listen. Thanks for listening to the National Life Stories podcast. You can find out more at bl.uk and you can listen to many of our interviews on sounds.bl.uk and look out for the next episode of our podcast. How have you found the process of this interview? Well, look how you found doing this interview. Do you think we've covered that period of work? Is there anything you would like to add? Full stop. <laughs>